we run the very real risk, if this legislation is implemented, of social unrest on a number of levels. There's the unemployment aspect. There's the fact that people are going to be unhappy that they're unprotected. There's the fact that people are going to lose firearms that have a value without any form of compensation. Martin Hood here. Today we're going to have a nice fruity discussion on the proposed amendments that were released at the end of October last year. We're going to start by quoting our National Commission of Police, Commissioner Kechler Sitoli. Due to the collapse of the National Crime Prevention Strategy, the SAPs became an all-purpose agency with an overstretched mandate that is impossible to fulfill. In other words, he said, SAPS has got a job and we can't do it. We need to see and understand the amendments that have been proposed in great secrecy by the police and the Secretariat of Police against the failure of the police to be able to protect the citizens of South Africa. What do these amendments mean? Well, first, let me introduce myself. I am Roman Kavanagh, co-host of the Renegade Report. And Martin, thank you for inviting me to your show. So I think let's, let's look at the, what we currently know about South African firearms law. It's, it's rather, it's a process to get a firearm, but the process has been around for over a decade and we sort of understand how it works now. Based on your reading of these amendments that were leaked last year, it appears that there's a dramatic shift in what the government wants to do in terms of firearms and firearm control in that sense. So what springs out when you actually read these amendments in front of you? Well, I think you make a very good point, and we perhaps need to touch on that first, and that is mm. the legislation as it currently is. And when it was introduced in 2004, everyone was horrified by it and thought it was extremely restrictive. But as good, responsible citizens, um, the people that wanted to get a firearm license – over the last 15 years, have learned how to comply with those uh, relatively new requirements. And people have jumped through the hoops and people have made the legislation work for firearm owners. So we took what the police wanted. And instead of just simply falling over and saying it's too much, we got to grips with it and we've made it work. Right. And arguably it's created a more, I would argue, a, a larger and more well-trained, well-disciplined gun-owning Absolutely. public. Absolutely. The number of firearms being lost has dropped quite dramatically and the incidence of criminal use of firearms remain at very, very, very low levels by licensed firearm owners. But what has happened is in making the legislation work for firearm owners, the police have said, well, that's not good enough because we should have made people want to get rid of their firearms and people want to get more firearms. So we need to revisit the legislation. And what they've done is they have released 144 pages of amendments which have some very fundamental policy and structural shifts. And I'm going to start with the most controversial one. And it's one that really makes one want to swear. And if it does become law, I'm going to say quite publicly, don't comply with it. And I'm going to tell people to break the law because I think it's a crappy law. And I think it's going to lead to, I think it's a very crappy proposal. And I think it's going to lead to a great deal of violence and a great deal of people being killed because they can't defend themselves. What the police want to do, and bearing in mind that they say they're overstretched and they can't comply with their mandate, what they want to do is they want to remove self-defense as a reason for owning a firearm. The biggest category at present 
of firearm owners is that of people who have firearm for self-defense. But it gets worse, Ramon. I can see the horror in your face. It gets worse because what they also want to do is they want to disarm the security industry as well. So there's a double whammy here. Right. right? So those are the two things we should actually go into a bit more detail. So out of proportion of firearm owners currently, how many would you suggest um, have applied for firearms license solely based on self-defense? So that's difficult to answer because the police's own record keeping is so so below par. It's actually it's it's chaotic. Um, I've had a look at statistics that have been released on occasion, and it's it's run at about 50%. So one out of two firearm owners have a firearm for self-defense. Um, what often happens is that um, a person will buy a firearm for self-defense, and then they will go back and buy a firearm for other purposes. But the biggest category is self-defense. It's about 50%, which in, in number terms is anything between one and a half and two million uh, firearms. Right. And the rest are uh, shooter, uh, hunters, hunters, sport shooters, shooting collectors. Thing, collectors, things like that. All right. So we assume that the average South African would like a firearm for self-defense and that now, for some reason, the police thinks this is a terrible idea. That well, uh, the sole reason for getting a firearm is for self-defense, which I assume... I'm not sure how to reconcile that in any meaningful way because firearms, the objective goal in getting a legal firearm is for self-defense because the police cannot protect you based on the report that you just read. So I'm going to answer that in a, in a, in a back-to-front way. If I can't have a handgun for self-defense, I'll have an illegal handgun for self-defense and I'll take the consequences of it because I'm not prepared to put the safety of my family at risk by having to face an armed intruder when I'm unarmed. And I think many South Africans feel that way. I have heard on many occasions that people have an illegal firearm for self-defense because they can't get a legal firearm. And I think that raises a very interesting point that government seems to constantly, constantly forget. And that is if people don't like a law, they don't comply with it. And I'm going to give you two examples. Mm -hmm. The first is the ETOL situation which we're all familiar with people just simply didn't pay their etols and government has had to backpedal and adopt a very inconsistent posture when it comes to etols and then of course there's a relicensing issue of firearms the fact is that half a million people didn't relicense their firearms and there must be a reason for that and the fact is that before the relicensing of firearms the introduction of the firearms control act when that happened about half the people did not transition their licenses either so we've had massive resistance to restrictions on the possession of firearms. And I cannot see that proposing more restrictions, it's, it's not going to be accepted by people and people won't comply with it. So government's forgotten about that. Indeed. They're just and, creating a black market for illegal firearms. And that's where I'm going to. The police already believe that that 500,000 people that haven't relicensed their firearms are illegally in possession of those firearms. But I don't see people being intimidated into just simply handing over their firearms. I've had very few queries from people that have a lapse license saying, what can I do? And in fact, I'm very well aware of a close family member who wanted to hand in her firearm to the police and they refused to accept it. And I was with her. So there is a completely inconsistent attitude on the part of the police, number right. one. And secondly, as I said, people are not going to comply with this. So the end result is, Mr. Policeman, Mr. Minister, Mr. Commissioner, you are creating a problem of such magnitude 
that you are never going to be able to solve it. Indeed. So in economics, we have something called the Laffer curve, right, where you have an optimal amount of taxation that people are willing to pay. And then they stop paying tax and they start evading it. Indeed. So this is the sort of Laffer curve of guns, if that makes any sense. But now we're on the downward trend where the cost of having a gun far outstrips the burden of actually getting it legally. So you would just get it illegally. And because the police cannot do their job and they function correctly based on their own admissions, getting an illegal firearm is much easier than getting a legal one. I think you're absolutely correct. We can go further than that because there are people that currently legally possess a firearm But if these proposals are implemented because the proposal is that when your license for self-defense expires, you can't keep that firearm. So that means that you have two choices. You can either sell it or you can hand it into the police for destruction. You won't be able to sell it because there's going to be a glut of firearms on the market where people can't license them. So there's no one who's going to have the right to license that firearm. So then it has no value. So you're going to create a situation where that end point comes to the license. People are simply going to sit back and say, I'm not handing it in. Indeed. The, the police are just creating a new class of criminals just based on non-compliance with a law that has no merit and in that's, existing. And that's exactly my point, that I won't be made a victim by a process of disarmament because that's what we're talking about here. This is the first step in a process of disarmament. All countries that have restrictive Firearm legislation start with self-defense firearms. They want to take away the means of a citizen to protect themselves in the absence of that protection provided by the state. And we have a situation on our national commissioner's own admission. We can't fulfill our mandate. We also mustn't forget the security industry because many of us rely directly and indirectly on an armed security industry. Right. But those are two distinct things. So let's just finish. So for self-defense, obviously, we're against it. It's it's a pernicious law, should it come to pass. It'll create a new class of criminal that exists solely under a very tight legal definition of criminal. It's just people who haven't complied with an onerous restriction or onerous burden of licensing. So that's for the self-defense. Now... Mm-hmm. If you don't have self-defense, as you just said, we have the security industry that provides security for the majority of the country because there are half a million security guards and about 150,000 policemen, as far as I understand, in this country. So security is a big business, big employer, and creates a lot of value and people like the services they provide. However, it appears that the amendments that you are showing us (laughs) want to cap all the benefits of the security industry as well. So it's a double whammy, as I said. What we have, first of all, is the fact that the security industry is probably the single biggest category of employer in the country. Many employees in the security industry rely on the existence of legal firearms because they're armed security officers, armed response, cash and transit and so forth. So let's look at the economic impact of taking away firearms. There are hundreds of thousands of security officers who will no longer be needed by their employers because they can't use the tool of their trade. So there's a social impact in as much as there's going to be unemployment. That's without doubt going to happen. And we must remember that there's certain sections of our population that more readily engage in protest action if they're socially dissatisfied. And we run the very real risk, if this legislation is implemented, of social unrest on a number of levels. There's the unemployment aspect. There's the fact that people are going to be unhappy that they're unprotected. 
There's the fact that people are going to lose firearms that have a value without any form of compensation. So if you take a security company that's got a thousand firearms that have got a value of fifteen thousand rand each, you're talking many you're talking hundred and fifty million rand if my maths is correct. So there's going to be a massive financial impact, there's an economic impact, there's an employment impact, and then on top of that, people are going to get killed because they can't protect themselves and they can't protect their property. I do not think that is going to be acceptable to the population. No, I don't think so either. So so directly and specifically, what do the amendments want to do so, to the security industry? So there's, 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 there's two roads in the amendments in respect of the security industry. The first is that they want to take away what we call restricted firearms. So when you see a cash van filling up an ATM or if you see a cash van transporting cash, generally speaking, those security officers have what we call a long gun. So it looks like a rifle. It's very big. You can see it. They want to take those away. So the first question is, you're going to now expect a cash and transit officer to go up against armed criminals with a handgun. And the answer is no one in their right mind is going to want to do that. So there's that element, the long guns, they're going to be forbidden. The second element is that if you want to get a firearm as a, as a security company, you've got to go to the police with a contract first that says a firearm is required. Now, let me tell you. If a security company servicing my area comes to me and says, look, I want to service you, but I need you to sign a contract before I get a firearm, I'm going to have two words for them. Mm. And they're not, going to, they're not going to like what I've got to say. But I'm not going to contract someone that doesn't have the tools of their right. trade. The words won't be yes, please. No. So it works on two levels, but the end result is that they want to radically restrict the security industry from um, access to firearms. And I think an important point, and I think most people have experienced this in one way or another – an important point is that the security industry generally is the first responder in an emergency. Whether you hit the panic button, alarm goes off, or if it's in the shopping mall somewhere, the security industry are there long before the police. Now, I want people who are listening just to conceptualize for a moment, taking away that and waiting and expecting the police to respond to a situation where the security industry normally is on scene. One can't imagine those consequences. Yeah, I do find the security quite um, maligned, especially when crime stats come out and there happens to be a decrease in a particular crime and the police take all the credit for it without ever acknowledging the security industry's role in maybe dramatically reducing that particular crime. Well, absolutely. And I, I go to an annual award ceremony where people are where security officers are um, honored for their contributions to to protecting people. And every year the list of security officers getting killed in the line of duty gets longer and longer. So we mustn't forget that these guys put their lives on the line for us as well. That's what they're paid to do. But nonetheless, they get killed in the process. And that's very, very tragic. And again, without firearms in the security industry, that number of security officers that could get killed is going to increase because they can't protect themselves. And Again, if I were a security officer and I was at a mall or at a shopping center and I'm now an unarmed guard and I'm expected to protect that mall, you can forget it. Absolutely. It's not going to happen. So the, the overall protection level in society is going to plummet because of that. That will not only result in us perceiving ourselves to be less safe, but it's going to create more violence because criminals are going to sit back and say, I'm not subject to all of these regulatory requirements. I have an illegal firearm. I've got a tool of the trade. And hell, I don't have any risk anymore. I can simply go into a shopping mall knowing that the probabilities of me being confronted by an armed security officer are that much less. Yeah, much more reduced now, should these get passed. So 
you, you've explained well about the reasons why these regulations are quite concerning in terms of self-defense and disarming the security industry. Now, to someone like me who's a bit of a layman, it does appear that the government wishes to – this is a, a disarmament bill that really wants to disarm the most – I can explain the armed population of populations well, the of the country. Abiding, the law-abiding – responsible part of our citizenry. I think what's important is when you go and buy a firearm, first of all, there's very much a tax element involved. We contribute to the fiscus. We pay import duties on firearms. We pay VAT. Gun shops employ people. Importers employ people. So it's an industry in itself which creates employment. It puts liquidity. It puts cash into the economy. You mustn't forget that because it's a big industry. The processes of getting a firearm license are processes that are difficult to comply with and require a high level of, of compliance with a specific set of laws. This is the road to disarmament at the end of the day. Basically, it's disarming the public and only allowing the police to be armed because I don't see any regulations for police and their firearms well, coming the police, out. So first of all, the police are exempt from the legislation, which in itself is of great concern because it means that they don't have to have the same level of training, the same level of safekeeping facilities, and that means... In overall terms, a police officer, and this is a fact, a police officer is more inclined to misuse his firearm. A police officer is more inclined to lose his firearm. So we have the ironic situation that we are losing the means to protect ourselves and we're relying more and more on a group of people that aren't properly equipped to do it. I think that we also mustn't forget that there is a definite disarmament agenda here. And I just want to go into the history of these amendments quickly because – the, the manner in which they came into the public domain is very important. They're drafted by Advocate Dawn Bell, who is an employee of the Secretariat of the Police. The Secretariat of Police is constitutionally and legally obligated to monitor the activities of the police, act as a coordinator, and the interface between the police, the public, and interest groups. Now, it's a well-established constitutional requirement that consultation needs to take place when anyone is going to be affected by a proposed decision or piece of legislation. It's clear from the substance of these um, amendments that some consultation has taken place because technically they're very detailed and they're drafted in a very competent way. But that consultation has not taken place with stakeholders. We as a body of firearm owners, sports shooters, hunters, collectors, and so forth, we have structures where we engage with the police. We engage with the secretariat, or we have engaged up to a point. We've been asking the secretariat, talk to us. We've known about these amendments for many, many years. But these amendments, and they are very substantial, have been drafted without any input, any input from any pro-firearm stakeholder. In addition to that, what we have here is clear evidence of an agenda that is internationally driven. And what I mean by that is we have various protocols that come from the United Nations um, that are adopted by different countries that uh, those countries are obligated to ratify by way of local legislation. And these overall proposals embody many of the fundamentals contained in UN protocols. That means that someone outside of South Africa is driving legal policy in South Africa. 
and that they are engaging with one sector of stakeholders, and that is the stakeholders that don't want firearms. Right. So are you arguing that amendments such as these are uh, intentionally, well, maybe not intentionally, but the uh, are a consequence of undemocratic and unpopular mandates that are not given by the people of South Africa? Well, there's no mandate involved, first of all. I mean, uh, overwhelmingly, when any sort of uh, poll has been conducted about firearm ownership in South Africa, it's never dipped below 50%, and it's been as high as approximately 70%. So the attitude of the general population is that firearms are here to stay. They are necessary, and in many instances, they are fun. We have organizations such as Gun Free South Africa that have no members, no membership base, that are foreign-funded, that have the ear of government and the ear of Dawn Bell, it would seem here. And they come and they sit and they say, you need to do this and you need to do that. And the proposals don't take into account my rights. They don't take into account my property rights. They don't take into account the right that I have to live in a free society, free of violence. Yeah, um, all the securities right to trade, the securities right, economic rights, uh, this, dealers' rights. It's it's a fundamental, unconstitutional process that is one-sided, biased, and it completely and utterly fails to take into account what South Africans want. Indeed. So why would the police even construe of such a thing if they know it's undemocratic? Well, I don't think I don't think this government and the police in particular know much about what what are democratic principles. I mean, I in my capacity as an attorney, I deal with the police on a daily basis and they don't even understand the fundamental rights that a suspect ha- has in terms of Section 35 of the Constitution, the right to silence and so forth. Police regularly abuse human rights. We have many examples of uh, uh, torture and deaths in custody. We all know that IPID is overwhelmed with the number of complaints about violence from the police. So I think that when you have a discussion about democracy and rights, it by definition excludes the police at this stage because they haven't got a clue. And I think that's one of the biggest problems that we have because the police actually think that this is possible. They think that these amendments are possible. They don't think rights. Indeed. And these amendments only give them more power. So there's an imbalance there. Well, I think not only is there a total imbalance, but again, we need to treat the police like a bunch of alcoholics because you can only deal with a problem once you acknowledge the problem. And here we have a whole bunch of proposals that require massive resources. They require skills in terms of people skills and training. They require physical resources. And the current status of that police department that deals with the control of firearms, chaotic is a compliment because their records are in absolute shambles. Their staff there are... Not equipped. They, they, they do not understand. A, a police officer, by definition, by training, is given certain discretions. They have, they have the right to exercise certain discretions, whether to arrest a person or not, whether to question them and so forth, whether to conduct a search. It's a discretion. It's a discretion that must be exercised in a proper way. Granting a firearm license is exactly the same. They have a discretion. 
They must consider the circumstances and they must apply their discretion and they must do it in a proper way. And the current status of the police that um, deal with firearms is that they have no clue. They, right. they act in a completely undemocratic way. So, so let's talk about capacity. Assuming these go through, assuming that we have to surrender our firearms because we can't um, renew our license for self-defense, there is no hope in hell that the Central Firearms Registry will be able to process there is no, any of this. There is no capacity. And I'm actually going to throw another spanner in the works, and I'm going to put my lawyer's hat on for a moment, and I'm going to say the following. They're going to create another problem. Not only that pool of once legal firearms that would now be illegal, but they would have grave difficulties in enforcing the law because their fundamentals are so lacking that I as an attorney honestly do believe that if I had to represent someone in court who is supposedly illegally in possession of a firearm, I would be able to establish that their records are so inept that they can't prove that that person shouldn't have that firearm. So the end result is going to be that they're going to have a pool of illegal firearms, they're going to try and prosecute people, and they're not going to succeed. Where is that going to take us to? Well, yes. Uh, yeah. No, nowhere good. Nowhere good. So, Martin, I mean, now that these have been uh, in the public sphere for a number of months, uh, what, what can be done to ensure that they don't see the light of day in Parliament or otherwise? They've been submitted to cabinet, and the process is that once cabinet gives its approval, it will go through a formal process, submission to the portfolio committee. They will publish the amendments for comment. Now, we have been trying as a body of firearm owners, the collectors, sports shooters, hunters, and so forth, we've been trying for a long time to prize open the doors of government and say, listen, before you do anything that's foolish, ill-considered, unimplementable and so forth you need to talk to us we need to engage on how we're going to get these amendments in a form that's going to be uh, reasonable going to be acceptable and most importantly people are going to comply with in conjunction with the capacity to do so and the attitude of government is bugger off we don't want to talk to you but that's hardly a surprise they do a lot of things unilaterally um i I don't see why we should actually try to talk to people who want to take away our rights without a mandate Personally speaking. Well, I think that, uh, again, as, as responsible bodies of firearm owners, the onus is on us to do everything we can within the constraints of the law to, do, to, to exercise our rights of objection properly, to exercise our constitutional rights to, be, to participate in lawmaking. And if that doesn't work, then I do fear some level of social unrest. As I said, there's economic unrest, people losing jobs. There's unrest in the sense that people, I think, consciously will make a decision not to comply. And I think that there'll be unrest in the sense that the police will try and enforce it. The police in trying to enforce it are going to, they're going to infringe on people's rights. And I think that that mix is a toxic mix. It's going to create even more circumstances for social unrest where people say, but this is, this, this is completely unacceptable. We do run the, the possibility does exist of some form of social meltdown if this happens because if someone loses a family member when they can't have a firearm to protect themselves and when the police are not going to be able to protect them, they will start by suing the police for failing in their mandate to protect them. But when it happens once too often, then the people affected by those 
tragedies are going to take the law into their own hands. Indeed. They're going to start shooting criminals and they're going to start shooting policemen because they want to express their dissatisfaction with the status quo. And in fact, uh, for all of you out there, there's a very interesting book called Unintended Consequences by John Ross, which deals with exactly this situation. And it makes for very compelling reading because I think that if these amendments are adopted, then the government has put us firmly on the path set out in unintended consequences. And trust me, what it results in is social unrest and overthrow of the government. Indeed. And, and a lot of, I'm not calling the ANC autocratic, but autocratic governments around the world have initiated gun bans and gun control as the first step to ensuring that the, the processes and the laws which they wish to implement at a later stage are not interfered with by roving gangs of legally licensed uh, citizens. Well, what you're saying in, in more direct terms is that an unarmed population is a more controllable population. And I do fully agree with that. If you look at um, the United Kingdom, for example, you don't have citizens, you have subjects. Now, that may sound a bit flippant, but in the United Kingdom, the population has been convinced to give up their rights in favor of government because government will look after you. So you don't think for yourself anymore. You can't, in the UK, for example, you can't protect yourself very easily. If someone breaks into your house and you walk out the other door, because if you get involved in the confrontation with them, and I'm not talking about firearms, I'm just talking about violence. So if you try and protect yourself or if you try and protect your property, you're going to be the one on the wrong side of the law. So we have many societies that have sacrificed individual rights in the stupid belief that collective rights are better. What is interesting, however, is... There's been a, a recent trend in two South American countries where the governments have turned around and said, we made a mistake on firearm rights. We should have actually allowed more people to have access to firearms because we think it would have limited crime. We think it would have improved our social circumstances. So there is a realization in certain parts of the world that um, restrictive legislation for firearms is not working. We also need to bear in mind America. It's got a Republican president who's very pro-gun. There's even been some statements made by European parliamentary representatives saying that the restrictive firearm legislation in certain countries such as France has not led to a reduction in crime. And in fact, what's interesting is there is no direct correlation between firearm reduction and reduction in violent crime. There's an inverse correlation, and that is that when you take away firearms, violent crime goes up. Indeed, and that's been proven uh, the world over, <clears throat> in many countries, the world over. So, Martin, anything to add to wrap this up? Yeah, I think it's very simple. These proposals need to be opposed in as strong as possible terms within a legitimate legal framework. If they do result in becoming law in the same or similar words that they've phrased in now, I will be one of the first people to be out on the streets protesting it because I'm not going to give up my firearms. I'm not going to give up the right to protect my family. We can call it hashtag gun revolt. Absolutely. I approve. This is cliffcentral.com.